Hello, and welcome to the Future of Tourism podcast. My guest today is a founding partner of BC Hughes Tourism Consulting in Ontario, Canada. BC Hughes has a proven formula for success. Offer a unique experience, make people laugh and smile, and make it memorable. It sounds easy. In some sense it is, but it takes research, creative ideas, a crafted delivery, and buy-in from all those involved. And that's where Chris Hughes, Director and Master Experience Creator at BC Hughes, really shines. He is a resultant, that special breed of consultant that is committed to helping his clients execute and realize the strategies and plans he has helped them to create. Good morning, Chris. How are you and what's it like on the ground where you are? Good morning, David. And thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate being here. Um, On the ground in Ontario, Canada right now is definitely um, unpredictable. There's a lot of the industry is sitting on the edge of their seats, um, just waiting to figure out what's going to happen when the emergency order is going to be lifted, when they can open. Um, Restrictions are starting to ease a little bit. But for the most part, um, in terms of in terms of visitor movement and things like cottage rentals and campgrounds and camps and, you know, all of those things that make Ontario shine um, are still not available at this time. So we're doing a lot of calls, a lot of uh, ministerial conversations, um, you know, just to try and figure out when that exactly can happen. But there is hope. There is definitely hope on the horizon. Well, and in talking about crisis, Chris, you and your partner founded BC Hughes in 2006 after years and years of working hands-on in practical tourism development at the municipal level, um, building better destinations, essentially. You dealt with a number of crises in in that time at the municipal level. There was the Walkerton water supply crisis 2000 and, and SARS of 2003. What did those events teach you in terms of recovery and the importance of pressing on with destination development? especially in the difficult times? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and yeah, I was, I don't know if you'd say fortunate or unfortunate to have gone through the first crisis, which was the, the Walkerton water um, crisis. And what that taught me, I was the destination manager for the County of Bruce at the time. So um, very important how that impacted our brand image and, you know, how the, the, the focus, the national and international attention was focused on the Walkerton community for some not so great reasons. Um, but what that taught was, was patience to be able to sort of weather the storm, if you will, um, ride it out, but at the same time have very solid plans and uh, uh, forecasting done for when, you know, when things when you're able to start to move again, when you're able to start to act upon. So it's very similar to with what's happening now. And it also meant at that time we surrounded ourselves with a good team. So we had, you know, minister, provincial advisors um, around us that were directly plugged into the government, which is really important. Um, but then we also had the industry and we, we brought on some good people to help mobilize the industry and listen to them and, and, and plan for what that recovery phase looked like. So when, when the government um, released its you know, stimulus packages, we were ready, we were prepared and we were ready. And I think that's sort of the number one lesson that, that transcends across into today's um, global pandemic situation that I'm telling the industry is use this time of pause 
to get ready because we know that there will be stimulus, that there will be a new normal. This one's quite a bit different, obviously, um, but things will change. And the same thing sort of kind of happened during SARS. And because the region that I was managing was north of, of Toronto, of, you know, the, one of the major urban centers in Canada, um, and SARS was fairly localized to the, to the city, um, when that, you know, when that crisis started to ease, our area, because we were only two hours out of, of that region, became inundated with people who wanted to get out of the city for recreation. So we really didn't have to do a lot of, um, you know, thoughtful process to mobilize people to come to our region because the floodgates literally opened once the travel restrictions were released. So two very different situations. And then this, um, you know, COVID-19 situation is completely different again, where the entire world is involved in this. And now I'm on the other side, I'm a consultant, um, and we're listening to a lot of our clients very closely. And again, I'm telling them to get ready. So um, yeah, three very different situations and uh, lots of experience, you know, I guess, unfortunately, in, in all of them. Well, Chris, you know, I, I, you brought something back into my consciousness that I haven't thought about in, in a little while uh, as we deal with the, the sort of uh, immediacy phase of this crisis. Um, and that is you and I are big proponents of having shovel-ready plans at all times uh, to address and, and take advantage of stimulus pa uh, packages. And, and whether it's crisis stimulus like this or it's, it's government incentives, which inevitably seem to follow election cycles. Go figure. Okay. Um, and, I, and I just, I can't underline enough the prudence of that. The number of times we've been able to take something we've been working on and because we've gone past the strategy and theory phase into creating actual planning documents and, and in some cases working construction documents, when those programs come up in the past, you've been able to take real advantage very, very quickly and be some of those projects that get approved at a provincial level. And I, and I think that's really worth reminding ourselves that having plans that are ready now for execution are, are, are supremely important. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, I just did a webinar yesterday where, you know, I used sort of one of the rules of if you fail or if you plan, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. But the main part of that is um, you've got to be prepared when, you know, to drive business back to your, you know, especially to your members, your operators, your boots on the ground. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to drill into that with you. So when Chris Hughes be, says, be ready with a plan, what does he mean? And, and let me tell you a story here. Cause we, we first met in 2011 and I swear you walked into my office with two yellow pages, thick um, um, research documents that you'd done for, for RTO four that were commissioned by my predecessor. And they were, they were pithy documents. They were, they were a few nights of reading each. And I remember looking at you and saying, this is great. There's a massive amount of intelligence in here, but quite frankly, what would you do with it? And you, and you said to me, what, if I was running the project? And I said, yeah, what would you do with it? And you say, well, in terms of priorities, you have the Grand River, which is one of 19 originally designated heritage Canadian rivers. Its prominence is nowhere near what it should be given the, the importance of that designation. I would focus the efforts on creating a strategy to bring that asset online in Ontario 
And, and I said, what would that involve? And you talked about the multiplicity of stakeholders it would take and the coordination it would take, the influx of capital from municipalities and from the provincial government. And I looked and said, so if we do this, I want one assurance. Will you be back here month after month, year after year to help us lead this project? And without hesitation, you looked at me and said, yes, although I'm sure in your mind you were thinking, what am I getting into and who is this madman? I still ask myself that question today, um, but you're absolutely right. And I think that's the, because I've worked on multiple sides of the industry. So I've been, you know, I was a, an operator when I worked for conservation authorities running adventure tours. I was a DMO manager and now I'm on the, the other side, on the dark side. And, you know, I do have a small little, you know, cottage rental business on the side as well. But what I like to do is when I build a plan, I like to see it through. And that's in the product development world of tourism. That's the, you know, every single DMO manager watching this will say, oh, my God, that's the it's so hard. It's so much easier to to do, to do ad campaigns than it is to to build out trail systems or, you know, build a new touring route or, you know, whatever the case may be that's where the hard work happens because you gotta, you gotta mobilize a lot of people on the ground and with the grand river, um, what are we talking? We're talking over a hundred different stakeholders. Um, and it's been a lot of years already and it's going to be a lot of years yet until all the sites along that, you know, 200 mile river are going to be, um, up living up to their standard of a world world heritage river. So I stick with it. Um, it's not sometimes the most glamorous work, but it's very rewarding knowing that I'm able to make an leave a, a dint on the ground of a of, of an experience of a product that's way better than 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 I found it. And I just want to share with you what got me into this world of of tourism product experience development um, was a guy by the name of Paul Sampson, who um, worked for the ministry, and he taught me when I was at the DMO level. Um, but I started looking at my assets, you know, in the county. And one of our major attractions in, in our region is, is a place called Sobel Beach. And it's like a mini Daytona Beach of the north. It's where people go, urban residents go to go to the beach. Eleven, seven miles of, of uninterrupted sand beach. Beautiful location. I started to look at the asset and go, hmm, it's not really performing the way it should because there's only 32 washroom units for seven miles of beach. Where are people going to the bathroom? And the joke was, well, they go in the lake that it's beside is called Lake Huron. Lake, and the, the joke became, it became Lake Huron. And, and I became driven to work with the municipality to, to improve the, just the, the visitor experience for uh, simply using the washroom on a, on a beach level. And, and it was, um, you know, that's where I kind of got my start was, was in that. Well, and, and we talk about in tourism all the time, you know, there's digital hygiene, there's physical hygiene. Um, even on the Grand River project, you started with a really manageable centerpiece, which was why don't we develop an access standards for the entire river and then we can go down municipality by municipality, picking off the opportunities. And I'm, I'm really pleased to say, I mean, we've been at this, you know, almost seven years since, since we actually launched the Access Standards Manual. There are five municipalities building six sites 
and the land contributions they've made are in the millions of dollars and they all see it as a great opportunity to work hand in glove with tourism to develop assets that don't just drive visitation but also benefit local stakeholders absolutely and that's you know that's the main part of that project is that there's so many people involved there's so many levels of municipal officials involved there's you know and ultimately there's the river users themselves which we have to be focused on you know to that's why we're doing it we're trying to increase the experience that they're having which hopefully increases the yield you know which brings the types of customers to that river that you know spend the quality money and and you know have an impact on the on the municipalities so it's definitely it's a long it's a long-term effort that 100% will pay off. It's just a matter of, you know, wrangling all the horses in the field um, to get them, get them rolling. Well, and I, I get to um, audit that program from time to time. And I think one of the really uh, interesting mile markers for me was, I mean, you've had stakeholders uh, at the table, the, the provincial government, the regional tourism office, the Grand River Conservation Area, the municipalities. But it was very interesting when you, when you launched the mile marker project that the head of the provincial police and the head of the provincial fire marshal's office stepped up and said, we need to be part of this program. This is a template for how we do leisure access, not just water trails, but land trails as well. I thought that was a, a really big turning point in this. Oh world. man, that, that was, um, that's where it showed the forces of tourism coming to play, you know, where you have the fire chief, you have the, you know, a high ranking um, police official sitting at the table you've got search and rescue you've got you know that's where what you know we take the assets for granted and say oh just go canoe the river but you don't realize all the people that are, who are the managers of that asset and yeah that was a real sort of eye-opening moment and the be- the neat thing about that was to see their level of engagement it's like yeah sure they were there from a search and rescue perspective but they also wanted to ensure that visitors had a great time that they weren't getting lost you know, that they were having a seamless experience. And I think that was really fun to see, again, how the tourism industry connected, you know, those multiple spheres of of interest. Well, and I look at the Grand River Project, especially in this time of of the COVID-19 illness, and and it's obvious that it too will be one of those assets that very quickly can come back online. It's super super suited to social distancing. You've worked on a number of projects around the province, and many of them are ongoing. Um, I, I think of the of the motor, motorcycle touring routes work that you've done. Another activity that can come back online that fits really well inside social distancing. You're hard at work in product development, and sometimes it's hard to make a case for why that needs to happen now, especially when people are looking at scarce dollars. Now, you and I share a philosophy that tourism development money comes back in in social marketing once the asset's done but talk to me right now about about working with your clients and why and how they're still committed to product development at a time when most of the rest of the work they're doing has to be you know shifted changed or particularly curtailed yeah for sure and you know again the easiest sort of um, path, and I don't want to say easy in the, in, in the light of uh, to downplay, you know, marketing creativity, but the easiest thing is to, is to lob out messages, you know, in times like this um, of comeback. And that, of course, needs to happen. But in the, my whole mantra, and, and you referenced it, is, is with the power of social media, you build, you create and work with your operators, work with your businesses to make uh, a really creative, unique, one-of-a-kind experience that does all the lifting for you. 
and we've seen it many, many times. There's one out right now that I wasn't obviously involved with in Finland, with, which called the Dinner for One, where they set the table in the middle of a field and they have the picnic basket hanging on the, on the, on the rope line and they slide it to you and you sit there by yourself and, and you eat. That got international attention. Whether or not that you know, is a sustainable experience that's making money, who cares? But that got the marketing lift. And other, you know, other projects that we've worked on where that's happened was we brought in conjunction with our um, provincial colleagues in Saskatchewan working on product development there. We brought goat yoga years ago um, when it was just emerging in the U.S. We brought it to a, a ranch in Saskatchewan with the with the business that was really excited to do it. And they got national media attention for you know, those sassy images of goats standing on your back and, you know, putting droppings on your yoga mat and all those things that people like to pay for, right? So I've seen it many times, you reference motorcycle, it's the same thing. Um, give, give riders really great reasons to go to a place um, and take photos and, and share memories with their friends and those all get posted on social media. Everybody knows that, um, but it is, the hard work that we seem to, as consultants, we seem to have to work really hard to justify to our clients and get access to product development money um, to build out those assets. Because the easiest path still in tourism is to take dollars, whether it's member dollars or recovery dollars, and spin it into advertising real quick. Um, we just always want to advocate for let's invest in those experiences and let's have the social internets do their magic for you. So, and then let's talk a bit about the, the, the motorcycle touring route work that you've done a number of places in the province of Ontario, for sure. Um, the tip of the iceberg, the bit we see is the incredible route, the open road and the maps and the, and the serviceability of this and the, and the bike friendly um, outfitters and restaurants, but getting to that is a really, um, um, structured process and, and the river followed a very similar process but talk to us about what we don't see in in the bit above the surface in motorcycle touring how do you even start working on motorcycle touring routes um knowing all of the factors that have to be in place before it's successful yeah and you know sort of our, our just in, in quick terms our, our processes we do we inventory the assets so within terms of motorcycle um, you know, we, we, we had a hunch that this area of Ontario was um, favorable for riders, but we had to, we actually had to get on the ground. I'm a rider, so I'm a little biased. We got on the ground and we inventoried all the roads and we did it virtually first. And then we, then we back checked it by getting on the roads and we went, you know what? Well, actually it blew our minds. We were like, holy shit, this is a, an incredible place to ride, you know, motorcycles. We need to tell the story. So then we work with the operators. We simply just don't then make a map with lines on it and say, come ride here. We work with all the businesses who want to be part of the motorcycle touring route to become motorcycle market ready, which means, means things like having covered storage, having a, a towel or rag to wipe off your bike, having a wash station, having a place to hang up your gear. There's a whole series of things that are really easy for, for businesses to do. We get them trained, we get them energized. Then we develop the story, we develop the brand story. So we just don't say, oh, come ride our twisty roads because everybody has twisty roads. So we develop the brand story um, for this project in particular is called Ride the Highlands. 
And, uh, and then we go to market. We create the collateral, we create the website, trip planning tools, print maps, believe it or not, uh, motorcyclists still love print maps because they spread them out at the end of the day and while they're drinking a beer, you know, contemplating the next day's ride, um, they work. And then we go to market and we, we sell it. We bring in influencers um, and we, they validate it for us and tell the stories and we do, you know, uh, our paid buys are with respect to boosting and pushing on social and, and bringing in influencers and stuff like that. But um, the product really starts to virally spread on its own. And that's, man, oh man, there's no better feeling for a guy like me than to see that happen. And now I see, I see people all over Canada are like, oh, this Highlands place, I got to go ride there. So now we're bringing in riders from the West Coast or the East Coast to come and ride this, you know, what's perceived as flatland Ontario. So I could do a whole show on this, on that project. Yeah. But, uh, so, so the catalytic role that either Hughes plays or the DMO or the RTO plays, explain to me how that becomes self-sustaining, especially, you know, using an example like the motorcycle routes, because there was a lot of upfront investment and, and, you know, these, these are frank conversations motorcycle touring success in Northern Ontario didn't take six months. It didn't take 12 months. It's probably almost three years of work that grew steadily in, in its traction, but now it's quite self-sustaining. Tell me about that. Yeah. The sustain sustainability aspect. That's a, that's an interesting question, Dave. Um, because some, some projects, um, it depends what the ultimate goal is. is. Is the goal for the DMO to front load it and support it um, with cash for the development and then back away, like plant the seed and then back away? Or is it to become a um, signature experience, signature product of that region DMO, which, which then requires sustained support? We haven't seen a lot of success with um, industry um, supported sustaining sustainability models. Um, they're mostly to this point, the majority of projects we've worked on are still supported by the DMOs, um, you know, considerably on an annual basis because of the fact that they haven't wanted to monetize, um, whether it's through map sales or digital, you know, ad sales or participation fees, things like that. For various reasons, um, so it, you know, I guess you have to ask yourself when when investing in a in a product, you know, again, like a canoe route, whether it's a motorcycle touring route, whether it's an art route, um, what does the you know sort of what does the ten year horizon look like for you to support that? And there is no one size fits all model. Um, I know in the, in the U.S. in Michigan, um, in Minnesota, there's some different models there, but from a motorcyclist perspective, but they're still not nearly as successful as when the DMO can get behind it and do the right work from the beginning and continue to push it all the way through. And, you know, frankly, in the development of these products, and I'll, I'll use the Grand River again as an example, when the DMO and the RTO work so closely on it, it generally becomes a signature experience. We're working on it because it is a a unique asset that's particular to the DNA of that region, which makes it all that more covetable in the tourism space. Yeah. And I will, I will add to that, that while we've invested for, you know, almost seven years in the development program, 
for the Grand River and, and the first three years of that being planning, the amount of money being spent on it now by municipalities to become part of it is is many, many times more than we've invested. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's, um, again, that's one of those successful situations. But it, just to tell everybody again, it doesn't happen overnight. It took that took a lot of year, what, six years of in the trenches of convincing people that this was the right idea. And now we're getting those high levels of municipal investment as infrastructure, you know, infrastructure investment. It takes, it takes a lot of time. Well, I, I had a great conversation the other day with Lauren Gold, the CEO at, at, at Raleigh, uh, um, uh, North Carolina. And he talked about a, a, an initiative they started in esports, and and it's going really well now. They they it's a tech oriented area. They have gaming development companies, and like, and they've invested steadily for the last two or three years in this. And uh, the interesting question I asked him was, "Where did you start, though? I mean, when you have this idea, you know, you you find out that you've got a potentially dominant position in esports, given the nature of your destination, the schools, the tech surrounding it. But what do you do next? And interestingly enough, they're doing things there very much like what I've seen go on with you in Ontario, and they're using things like either Destination Next or or Tourism Cafe as a gathering point to bring stakeholders together to identify a vision and then move and inspire them to work on that vision. I've seen you do that many times. Um, talk about the stakeholder engagement piece on this and, and how critically important it is, because I can tell you as the person who, who, who shepherded the Grand River program at the RTO, it wasn't going to happen unless all hundred of those people did get to the table. So talk to us about that. Yeah. And, and you, you know me that I'm a relationship guy that, you know, um, I always remember one thing that that you told me that you're gonna you're gonna build success one lunch at a time. So you got you got to take people out to a lot of Chris, lunches. Chris, that that was funny until sometime in 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 two thousand. No, two thousand fourteen when I weighed two hundred and sixty pounds, <laughs> and then I knocked. It, go ahead. You no, know, in in terms of stakeholders, you know. It, you have to, as a DMO and as, as you know, we have all these webinars and Zooms and high-level calls. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of people that have the backs of the industry. But really, we, we really have to distill it down to, you know, what is our ultimate goal? Our ultimate goal is to put cash in a, in a small operator or a, what, into an operator's pocket of whatever scale. And we have to involve when we're talking about stakeholders, we have to involve all of those people that are going to understand that end game. And especially we got to involve those people whose, whose businesses we're trying to stimulate. Cause at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Um, and on a project, I make sure that I establish relationships with those people who are going to directly benefit from the project for a couple of reasons. And the first one is because they're going to become huge advocates in your corner to keep the project going. So if we have a private operator calling the DMO manager saying, oh, my God, this is the best idea I've ever, you know, we've ever seen come through. We stand to generate 15 percent of off-season business because of this project. Boom. That is a huge boost to a project. And the second, the second point in there is it's personal. As I, I want to see them succeed. And I know we all do in this industry as the managers, as the developers, but there's nothing better than hearing those stories that 
uh, uh, $800,000 project has now contributed to uh, a, a small business owner being able to hire an extra staff person to deal with the, the increased demand. Like those are the results that we're always working for. So we have to bring them in. You know, it's, this isn't rocket science. We have to bring them in right from the beginning and hopefully see it through. Well, um, Chris, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's rather uh, funny that we interviewed you today in a workshop. I think it's a perfect <laughs> context for, for how you go about being again, what I call a resultant, um, yeah. you've got a number of projects that you're still in the midst of, even in the middle of this crisis, your, your clients see them as valuable and they actually see them as projects that will future proof their exposure in the long run by creating assets that are sustainable. Can you talk about some of the projects you're, you're currently working on? Just give us, give us an idea. What's, what's, what's going on there. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, we're really excited to be working um, with parks Canada on a lot of experience development projects. So our national park system, we, we know, especially, and we, we just had a call, you know, with regards to as soon as things start to lift, the first place people are going to go is to parks and public spaces. Um, so we've got to be ready for that. But doing some, there's, Parks Canada is doing some really innovative um, visitor experience projects across the country, and, and we're, we're happy to be part of that. Um, working with some downtown revitalization projects, which is, I tell you, we kicked off a uh, a downtown project just before COVID-19 hit and we had to do a complete 180 um, with regards to what the focus was going to be, you know, about that project. So that's fun. Um, we're still doing uh, a lot of motorsports work um, within Ontario, um, a big snowmobile project called World's Best Snowmobile Destination, which covers a big chunk of, of Northern Ontario where they get snow from November till April. So that one's fun, uh, always in July when you're working on snowmobile. We're still engaged in, in motorcycle route development. Um, yeah, we've got, if it wasn't for development um, work in this industry, we'd, we'd be um, playing a lot of solitaire right now, but we're, we're busy. Like we and our clients are doubling down and they, they know that this is the time that during this pause um, to hit the gas. So we're, we're very, very, very grateful for that. So as, as you plan on that, and, and in particular, as you, you know, you look at Northern Ontario with, with much less dense populations, they're going to be hit just as hard. They're going to see sometimes what really is 30% of their normal um, attendance and occupancy. How did they, your, your programs are really well suited to distancing, but how does an operator begin to pivot? And, you know, restaurants are the ones that always come to mind where restaurants were built on a yield per square foot. Um, how, do, how do we, how do they shift? How, how is it viable at 30%? Are you having those discussions with your, with your destination partners as to how they're going to deal with their stakeholders in those fronts? Yeah. And just on your Northern Ontario um, piece there, like we, we have operators in this province who are from the U.S. So that own lodges in Northern remote high-end lodges in Northern Ontario that can't even get access to their lodges. So when you say a 30% reduction, um, I think, you know, the, the, the longer the clock ticks with, with remote operators, um, their season is just, is, you know, is, is being chopped, especially again, if you're a Northern owner and you can't, or a U.S. owner and you can't even get to your property, um, that's going to set you back even when things do start to open. But yeah, we're, we're telling people to, you know, and you use the word pivot. I like to use the word swivel. 
I've just kind of reinvented that word the other day because I'm getting tired of the word pivot. But um, um, if we swivel, um, you know, with we mentioned restaurants, you know, I just read something today where in Europe they're they're keeping streets closed where they're allowing restaurants to set up outside where social distancing practices can happen more often or be better, you know, suited than inside. So shifting you know, there's going to be some fundamental business shifts um, to ca- recapture some of that business. We've seen it with takeout and any restaurant will tell you that there's no way that they're matching their same, you know, amount of revenue because of their, their takeout offerings, but they're still able to, to keep, to keep alive. But um, yeah, we're, I don't get too much into the, the game of making projections for our clients at this point. It's just, I'm telling them to, to be prepared um, and get ready for when, you know, when the new normal, when the new normal happens. Well, and, and the good news is though, that doesn't mean that that work's not going on at the stakeholder level. I saw some great work yeah. this morning with a restaurant. Um, and actually, you know, the fellow, you know, James Eddington and Exeter, yeah. who's basically taken his whole property and, and has making a, a proposal to the government saying, look, if I take my whole property square footage and move my tables out under tents, I can achieve the same gross numbers, but I'll have to use up my entire property, which means you have to license it from the curb to the back door. Right. Um, and that, that's and actually, you're going to see, you're going to see a lot of that flexibility happening, you know, especially from the municipality municipal world from planning regulations. I think I know, you know, the, 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 government organizations that we work with are, are going to take a real business first approach. And especially in Ontario, we've seen it with the loosening of, of liquor, you know, liquor regulations and even with cannabis, you know, legalized here, um, you're going to see them take a really um, smart, proactive approach to, to situations like, like Eddington's for sure. Sure. And then just to just close out today, Let's talk a bit about stakeholder engagement. Um, there is there is a, um, a significant school of thought in this crisis that right now destinations that have purpose built stakeholder networks that have done more to engage with their local stakeholders and with their locals are doing better um, than destinations that haven't. Real product development, real destination development is all about stakeholder engagement. Um, you have a network of, of peers out there that you that you've built up around these projects. How's that? How's that playing out? Well, I think from you know from my perspective, um, we're working a lot more closely with industry colleagues. Um, but in terms of in terms of DMOs, um, I think on one of your previous um, podcasts, we you, you talked about how this is the time for the DMO to, they have to reinvent themselves. If they don't have that robust stakeholder um, piece, you know, engagement ready to push play, you know, email, whatever the, you know, communication method is, if they don't have that, they're, you're almost irrelevant, you know, so you have to be representing your, you know, your business community at a really, really intimate level. And if you're not, um, you can only regurgitate, you know, communications coming from federal and provincial levels in your e-blast so many times before people are like, eh, this is, you're not giving me any value. So you better come up with some, some pretty harsh programs. If you don't have the budget for it, um, align yourself with those stakeholders that do and, you know, get some, get some things in the works. 
Very good. Um, last messages to your peers in the industry, to, to destinations, to travelers, anything that's on your mind that we should all be thinking about? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think that we have to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We have to be, you know, we're on pause and we have to be patient um, with what's happening. And I know people are, very, are quickly becoming antsy because the season's happening and that's the whole timing of this whole pandemic situation. But we really have to be patient to um, have the best interests of our, our world health in, in, in mind, first and foremost. And then I'm confident that, you know, we'll see, you know, those smart people who've, who've swiveled and who've made those movements, um, you know, they're going to, they're going to come back and, you know, what, what hurts us temporarily makes us stronger in the long run. So, you know, those are my, <laughs> those are my <laughs> philosophical words. You're way better. You're way better at stringing the words together than I am, David. So, uh, you, you're great, Chris. It's been yeah. a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Um, you know, I, I do look forward to the next time we meet in person, and, and I, I hope it's on a road somewhere, on a or on a trail somewhere for sure. Yeah. Um, thanks for being here today, and and best to you and your family. Stay safe and uh, keep doing your good work. Thanks, David. Really appreciate you asking me to be on the show. Thanks. 